Welcome uh, to uh, the latest in our conversations in Between the Lines, um, and with me, Tim Matthews. And I'm very happy indeed to welcome today Adam Fordenheim, who's the publisher and managing editor of Pushkin Press. Uh, so, hi Adam, thanks very much. Hi, thank you for having me. And I just wanted, maybe we could kick off with, if you want to tell us something very basic about how you got into not only publishing, but uh, um, publishing text in translation. Well, I studied um, German literature as an undergraduate, and then German, French, and English literature um, as a postgrad. Uh, and then I began working in publishing directly after that. Um, uh, originally on more academic books. I was working for Yale University Press in London um, and did history and politics and historical and literary biography. And then I moved in early 2004 to Penguin, where I was publisher of Penguin Classics and Penguin Modern Classics mm -hmm. for eight years. Right. Um, and, uh, and then a year ago, uh, left Penguin to buy Pushkin Press mm -hmm. with a partner who's French, in fact. Uh -huh. right. And you know, perhaps you could tell us a bit uh, what uh, you know, new opportunities Pushing the Press gave you in terms of thinking about translation, thinking about different audiences for it and mm -hmm. different types of choice for translations, text to translate. Yeah. Well, I think that um, I was obviously doing a lot of translation while I was at Penguin, right? Penguin Classics mm -hmm. is um, a huge part of it. Mm -hmm. it's, it consists of translations. And since I was running not only the modern classics list, but the, you know, the, what's called the black classics internally, um, it was ancient classics, it was things from, you know, Greek and Latin and uh, Sanskrit and, and you name it, um, as well as the modern languages. Um, but I wasn't doing um, contemporary literature at all. And one of the things that um, you know, made me want to leave after a while and do something new was the opportunity to commission translations of contemporary works of fiction largely, which is what I'm particularly interested in. Mm. Um, and we're also launching a children's list at the moment, and again, that is largely of works in translation too. Um, and that children's list um, is is something that um, I think is pretty unique to, to Pushkin Press. Mm. Um, there, are, there are a fair number of books that are translated, picture books that are translated for children um, by a, uh, some small publishers like Gecko Press in New mm. Zealand and um, Phoenix Yard, who are based in London, but there are, to my knowledge, there's no one who's really specialising on the kind of five to ten and ten plus range, mm. and and that's what we're doing. Mm. Um, so it's a list I'm incredibly excited about. Of um, and and and, I, and again, that was not an opportunity that I had mm. in the past. Mm. That's, I, I didn't know that. And uh, which languages are you translating from? Um, I mean, in general. we are translate in general. We are translating from. This year we will publish yeah, I mean, translations for, 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 for the, the children's for the side. Children's one, yeah. For the children's list, we have books coming through from Icelandic, Danish, Swedish, that's sort of Nordic uh -huh. condition. Um, we've also got books from French um, and uh, Basque, yes. um, in fact, and um, Dutch. Uh -huh. And then next year we've already um, acquired and commissioned translations, again another one from Dutch, from Japanese. Um, and from from um, from French as well, so those, that's where we are at the moment. But oh, you've got to be exciting! I, I, I wonder if you'd like to say a bit more about um, you know the particular demands of translating for children or mm -hmm. translating texts yes. that are in any case directed to children, but also yeah. translations for children. Yeah. Um, well, particular challenges, I guess. I'm not. I'm not sure the challenges are any different, really, except that uh, occasionally, of course, you you may find references that you 
you might be able to kind of um, footnote in some cases in an adult book or something that yeah. um, uh, that it, obviously in a children's book that doesn't work. So you, mm-hmm. you 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 do have to make sure that all the you know everything in the text makes sense to yes. the child and works that way. But I, I think in general. Uh, that's not too much of a problem. We haven't encountered a, a too much of a problem at the moment. So I was rummaging in my bag because I was mm. going to um, show you the catalogue as some sort yes. of form of inspiration, which of course I, I am now um, I'm now in, in typical form. It's not appearing, but um, <laughs> but um, I will I will um, but I will I will tell you. You'll have to imagine it since it's a radio interview Absolutely. anyway. Yes. Um, yeah. The joys um, of yes, sound. In fact. Exactly. <laughs> um, but um, but no, it's a list that I'm incredibly excited about, mm. and I came to it partly. Um, I have three children of my own. Uh, my eldest daughter is 10 this, this weekend, and then she's an incredibly avid reader. Mm. And when I had to feed that appetite for books, which I've had to do the last, you know, three, four years, yes, but indeed. increasingly as she kind of, over the last couple of years, I found myself really struck by how little there was in, yeah. in her translation, how narrow yes. um, the books that were available were almost all British and American. And, I agree with you. I mean, is that is that a prejudice on behalf of children that you know place the problem by adults? So, no. yeah. you know, oh, yes, yes, absolutely. That children only like stuff in their own language or something, yeah. supposition um, like that. Well, I think there are a few reasons for it. I mean, I, I think one one of the reasons, perhaps the most obvious and the fairest reason, is that there is such a rich um, children's right, you know, tradition of children's literature mm. in both Britain and America. Mm. Um, and so, and you've got a lot of people writing a lot of really good books. I mean, um, Philip Pullman, for example, mm-hmm. is is a fine writer, not just a children's writer, but a fine writer by any measure. You know, um, uh, I think absolutely extraordinary. And there are a lot of you know there are a lot of other really first-rate writers. So, it, people I think have felt publishers haven't felt the need to look beyond yeah. you know the English language mm-hmm. in, in in a way. Um, and I think that's a real shame because I think there, you know, what I've discovered is that there are a host of really extraordinary children's books out there. And obviously, some books have made it into English over the year. The Moomins, Pippi Longstocking, yes. Emile and the Detectives. You know, we can count out. And um, and and uh, I think that the, the author that kind of is most successful for um, you know, kind of I guess seven to fifteen. Um, you know, the, the, the sort of foreign author who's most successful at that age group is probably the German writer Cornelia Funke. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she's wonderful, she's absolutely wonderful, but she stands out um, because I couldn't find any, I haven't found anyone else like her. Um, and she's, a, you know, she's an international success. Um, but there are many other writers um, who are very successful in their own country and who've been translated into many other languages, as we're finding, that have never made it into English. Mm. Um, the, the best example of this, I think, would be a book that we're doing in the autumn called The Letter for the King by Tonka Dracht, which is a Dutch novel um, from 1962. Mm-hmm. And the year it was published, it won the Dutch Children's Book of the Year. Fifty years later, it was chosen as the best Dutch children's book of the last 50 years. It's been translated into 15 languages, not obscure languages, you know, German, French, etc., um, Russian, Japanese, I think, um, never translated into English. It made to a film yeah. and it's a it's an incredibly gripping book. I'm reading it to my two older children at the moment. Um, so, for what age would you um, say it's aimed at? Ten plus. Yeah. Um, you know, you can read it to a younger child. They probably wouldn't read it themselves. Um, yeah. You know, anyone under sort of nine, ten. Yeah. But it's a quest novel, um, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's extraordinarily well paced, very gripping, 
Um, and as I say, my, my two older children are loving it, um, and I'm thrilled to be bringing it into English. You know, yeah, it's a absolutely. real, it's a, it's a Dutch classic, yeah. and as I say, lo- every Dutch person I've yeah. talked to immediately is shocked and horrified to find out <laughs> that it's never appeared in English, yeah. and and lots of Germans know it. It's been very successful in Germany. Yeah. You know. uh, something is often mentioned in in a, in, a, in a range of, of ways, uh, ranging from the you know thoughtful to the less than thoughtful. Mm-hmm. We often say that you know the problem with translation is, is is the cultural aspect rather than the linguistic aspect. Mm-hmm. Do you think do you think children are in fact uh, just just uh, constitutionally a lot more open to to hearing about different cultures than their own? I don't, that's even putting it mm-hmm. too grandly, but just hearing about different countries and different places, do you think it's in itself exciting to them? Yeah, yes, I think there is, some, there is something in that. I mean, obviously, even children's books in English often take people on yes. adventures to other countries or set in other places. But I, but I also think that um, there is such a universal... You know, it's amazing when you read children's books that usually, most of the children's books that I've encountered, this isn't true of all of them, and just like it wouldn't be true of all in English, mm-hmm. Some something you know. It's like some books are very uh, much of a particular time and place and culture, mm-hmm. but most books aren't really in the same way. Or from those particular experiences mm-hmm. that are described or whatever, you get universal themes, lessons, whatever you want to call it. The stories are pretty universal. Um, this Dutch novel that I've just mentioned, you know, the Letter for the King, is nothing particularly Dutch about it, to my mind. I, I, I don't. It's not set in Holland. You know, okay. it's set in a imagined. Medieval kingdom, okay. so there's nothing particularly Dutch about it, um, and that's true of other books that I've read um, and that we're publishing. Um, a Danish series that we're doing called Vitello, um, which is for a slice of a five to eight year old group. Um, they're, uh, you know, they're called Vitello. The boy is called Vitello, which is uh, obviously Italian means veal, in fact. But yes. um, it's a sort of joke in a way because the mother went to Italy and longed for it, and that's why she named. But w- what is probably Danish about those books and makes them slightly edgy in a in a in a British context is that they there's a single she has a single mother boys living with a single mm-hmm. mother mother you know probably drinks a little too much has the extra <laughs> glass of white wine um, you know the father isn't on the scene at all and yeah. all of that but but they're very very funny and and quite moving and mm-hmm. um, again I think they're really powerful mm-hmm. and there's nothing it's not really specifically Danish but they probably are slightly off. Um, you know what your average kind of British children's yes. book would be, but yes. I, I do think, as you said, I think children are very open to mm. these kinds of things. Can I ask you about the Japanese one as well, simply because uh, I, I should imagine, or obviously in the original, is going to look so different, yes, know, because of its uh, yes. the way Japanese is written and all the rest yeah. of it, and yeah. indeed yeah. probably illustrated. If this is a yes, I mean we're well, uh, m- many of our books, not all of them, but many of the children's books are illustrated, and we're using. Um, a combination. In some cases, we're using the original illustrations um, done by the local artist, and in some cases, we're commissioning new work. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are actually two Japanese books that we're doing next year. Um, I don't, you know, they they both in different ways are influenced by, in those cases, by and the experience of the Second World War and how and how that was experienced in Japan, mm-hmm. um, and trying to in in some ways that's a the part a part of the book. Um, but again, I think you know there are lots of um, children's books in English that deal with the Second World War in some way or another. So it's not unfamiliar to people. It's just a slightly different angle on it. Um, in terms of how they look, uh, I guess that's another thing which I think has become very. Um, I think people are more and more open to different styles of illustration than they mm. perhaps once were, mm. and. 
and you see that in the picture book market, which we're not entering. But um, it's a very, I think it's an incredibly flourishing market these days, and people are doing a lot of interesting stuff. And a lot of the, the most compelling illustrators are not, are not British or American. They are from elsewhere. Um, and I think people are very open to this kind of thing and excited by it, mm. by the different styles. So, mm. um, you know, I don't... In fact, with one of these Japanese books, we're, we're talking to a French illustrator about it, but with another, we might use a Japanese illustrator. We'll see. Mm. Mm. Fantastic. Yeah, but I'm so interested to, to look at them myself. Yeah. I think my children are a bit old now, mm. but uh, <laughs> um, it'll be, be, be great to see them. Um, uh, I wanted to pass on to a, a couple of other things, just I've just got noted down here. Um, um, the Travel of the Century, isn't it, is shortlisted for the Independent Foreign Fiction yes. Prize. Yes. Um, perhaps you could just tell us a bit about how that came to, to Pushkin Press. Yes. Um, well, that, that's it's about Andres Neumann, isn't yes, it? Yes, Andres Neumann. So he, he, he won the Alfa Guara Prize, which is an incredibly important prize um, for Spanish books. He's from Argentina, but he lives in Spain. Um, and this book has been translated now into... French, um, and I think Italian, and a few other languages. He's and the English translations by Nick Castier and Lorenzo Garcia. That's right, yeah, so exactly. Two translators. Absolutely, and, which is, and I know they worked quite closely with Andres. He was very interested in the translation, uh -huh. um, very involved with it. Um, and it is also about translation, part yes. of the novel, and about a relationship between yeah. translators. Translating um, poetry in particular. Yeah, I think. it's a very, it's a very um, ambitious novel, um, set in a kind of imagined post-Napoleonic mm -hmm. Germany, um, and it, it's a sort of, I think it's a it kind of cross between, uh, and Andres might say this or might not, I don't know, but it feels to me like it's a cross between a kind of magic mountain um, and that, that kind of, that kind of, um, you know, uh, European um, realist novel of the, of the early 20th century, mm -hmm. um, and a kind of magical realist Latin American tradition from you know Garcia Marquez etc from later it feels like a, a wonderful kind of mix of the two um, and it's a mix both in terms of the style but also in terms of the subject matter I mean they end up having a, a very um, steamy sexual relationship the yeah. two you know the uh -huh. two the two um, translators um, and 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 that does that feels a, a, a you know a departure from you know from a kind of you know from the bookish sort of attitude yeah, exactly. to the translator <laughs> exactly so it's very it's very different that feels very that feels very um, yeah. Latin American yeah. um, but I think it's a wonderful novel um, you know I'm delighted for Andres that he's been shortlisted and. I haven't had a chance to get into it yet, as it mm -hmm. came out earlier this year, didn't it? Like, yeah, it came out exactly a year ago. Oh, I In see. fact, yeah, it came out a year ago because this prize is for publish, books published in 2012. Right. Um, and then the, the paperback came out in January this uh -huh, year. Ah, paperback, correct. yeah. 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 Um, I wonder if you could tell us a bit more, you know, what, what poets are being translated and why that's central to the novel. Can you remember at all? Oh, God. It's so, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. one of the problems when you read so many books um, is that you... you um, you you kind of they, they get to kind of merge yeah. together in your mind and remembering the details because I've read it a while ago and I think I think it's been poetry I think, in particular. Yeah, perhaps, I think for, for for me the thing that really stuck with me is more just the that exploring this relationship between translators yeah. and yeah. Um, and uh, I think it's interesting it's striking because it's relatively rare in in literature, in, you know, literature. and interestingly the only other example I could think of which isn't quite the same but is in um, is also by a Spanish language writer, which is in Javier Marias's book, A Heart So White, mm -hmm. you know, where it's two interpreters, as I recall, mm -hmm. um, who, who meet as, they're, um, as they end up interpreting between 
um, a prime minister who is very much like Margaret Thatcher um, and the Spanish prime minister of the day. Um, it's a wonderful comic scene in the book, and it's how these two interpreters meet. Um, but I think you know it's it's interesting in a way that it hasn't appeared more in, in fiction because there's so much um, to explore there about relationships and between people. I I think it's terrific. Um, so going back to, to Andros Neumann working with the translators a little bit. Yes. Um, um, it, 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 I'm sure our listeners will be interested in hearing more about that, about how because it's a very, very complex and also varied relation, isn't yes. it? Some authors are not interested at all. Well, I wouldn't say not interested, they're just happy to be to have confidence in translators. And the yes, and what they want, and others would like to be involved in the process. Yes, and I think it does it varies, but also a lot of it does have to do with their how confident and comfortable they are with their grasp of the language they've yes. been translated into. Indeed, yeah. And I think with English, of course, increasingly people's yeah. English is very good yeah. and they're used to reading in English. Um, yeah. And so I think that as a result, probably more and more people are you know, getting involved. The other thing which I have learned, I know various authors have said to me and agents and, and publishers, is even if they don't know English that well, English is sort of, they almost feel like that's the edition that's most likely to be read by the most number of people anywhere in the world, you know, over time at least. It feels like it's the sort of, you know, the, this really important edition of the book in some way and then representative of it in a way that perhaps if it's translated into, you know, Hungarian, they don't feel the same way because they know it's going to be read by a relatively small number of people. So I think, I think in general authors are very concerned that the English translation be as accurate and true to the book as possible. Um, I think with Andres, his, uh, his grasp of English is very good. Um, I mean, I've both heard him speak and also from emailing with him, mm. you know, um, over a long period of time. Um, so his English is extremely good. Um, and so, you know, and I've dealt with other writers who's, who I think they, you know, they're, they're not really generally interfering either. It's just that they're taking an interest in the translation mm. process and they're wanting to, you know, they're wanting to share their views on mm. things. And sometimes, um, they catch mistakes, you know, they catch mistakes that the translators have made. Um, uh, it can be very minor, it can be more important. And it's just another pair of eyes in a way, really. Mm. And I, I think um, I, I don't have a view in a way on whether authors should be involved with their translation no. or not. I think it's really up to the author. And uh, as you said, I mean, many authors aren't involved at all. Um, either because their 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 language skills aren't good enough or because they just trust their translators and they have they want to get on with their Next work. Mm. Mm. I mean, in, in, in these conversations for Between the Lines, we've had a, a, a number of different in, insights and experiences as, mm -hmm. as to how this has worked. So that's why I'm interested sure. in talking about it with you as sure. well. Um, um, because it's, however good a person's English is that we're talking about translating into English, and, yes. um, they are going to be hearing things differently anyway, aren't they? Absolutely. Um, so it's, it's, I suppose it's a never-ending debate, isn't it? If, they, if it, you say they are in the in the debate mm -hmm. at all, it's a never-ending, we've got to put into it somewhere, but it, it's, it, it's, uh, it is, um, it's, not a, it's not a right or a wrong answer ever, is it? Yeah, even, I mean... Even with the author saying, well, I think it means, I think I think got it wrong there. The, the translator might say, oh, yes, but I don't think you read the English right either. Yes, you know? yes, of course, there are, I think that that's true. I mean, I'm thinking more, I was thinking in the particular case that I mentioned where mm -hmm. they actually caught words that had been mistranslated, yeah. so particular nouns that had been read as, you know, I was thinking of one where it was translated as a goat and it was a chicken, oh, you know, yeah. something like that, yeah. where it was just, it was just speed, you know, yeah. it's just a last. But I mean, in a sense, that's almost like a proofreading, is, yeah. you know, mistake that's caught. Um, 
In terms of the sort of larger issue that you've raised, I think it is very interesting, and I think that um, that that what you would hope is that the translator has the final say or word on it, mm. but that the author is then yeah. contributing their opinion. Just yeah. as as an editor yeah. of translations, mm. um, what I tend to do, even if I can read the original, um, I read German fluently. My French is is is, you know, is, is passable. Um, but I don't tend to refer to the original when I read translations because I feel like that's the translator's job. Mm. And my job is to read it and yeah. see how does it read in English. Um, and so what I want, if, if anything jars with me, mm. I will query it. Yeah. Um, and my, by querying it, I'm not saying you must change this to the translator. I'm just saying, could you take another look? Yeah. You know, and, and often I'm told, well, actually, you know, um, this is this way for X, Y, and Z reasons. Yeah. Or other times they say, "Oh, I'm glad you raised that. You know, I must go back to it." It was a sort of literal because, as you know, you said yourself, you're a translator. I think that every translator works slightly differently, and some uh, some put things in a kind of very literal way when they go through it, and then they refine it. And so it's not you know on a second pass. And it's not surprising then I think that sometimes things get overlooked, and yeah. at the second pass, something's left in the kind of literal. Times. And of course, when you do know the language, I've often spotted this with German translations that I've worked on that I that I encounter sort of literal translations that have been left hanging in that draft. Yeah. And and usually the translator has been very glad that I've um, you know pointed it out. Um, so I you know and they, they you know in some cases of course they said no I deliberately did it that yeah. way. But it's yeah. a, I, I think it's an exciting process. Oh, I, so, so do I. Yeah, I was going to ask you exactly that. I mean, um, I wonder where. Again, there's probably not, not a, there's not a one answer to this, but I wonder in general what you might think about the whole issue of uh, making things sound good in in the translated language. You know, I mean, obviously, you don't want them to sound bad in English, um, but at the same time, there's also variety yes. and, and, and yes. the voice of the author mm -hmm. and. Uh, these all, are all those things. This is an this will this is a never-ending debate. Absolutely. Isn't it? Um, I don't. I'm. I, you know. I don't have a firm view on this. I think. I think it really depends on the translator and their skill. And I. You know. Some people obviously, their main aim is to have it read as fluently as possible in English. And I. Just as an example, Anthea Bell, who's mm. translated. Um, Yes. Almost all of Stefan Zweig for Pushkin Press, Pushkin yeah. Press yeah. but translated many other books from yeah. the German, both for adults and children, for many publishers, yeah. um, and has won many awards, and I think is an extraordinary translator. Um, she, I, I think she would probably agree with this, the saying that she really wants things to read well in English. You know, that's her. She's that's, spoken to that's us her as well, and, and has spoken about the, um, um, I can't remember exactly how she puts it, but the, the central to her idea is illusion. Yes, the, the, that's right. The illusion. Of her, of of the reader, uh, the, the the reader would have of reading the original mm -hmm. author. Yes, and and that, and that is her, her artistic aim. Yeah, and, and yes, exactly. And that is that is a um, a view that I respect and admire, and I think she does a brilliant job. I mean, I think she's a absolutely wonderful writer. I mean, there was an event earlier this year celebrating Stefan Zweig, um, which involved Anthony Beaver and Ali Smith. Mm -hmm. um, and Ali Smith, um, when she got up to talk about this. She couldn't have, uh, you know, she she couldn't have been more, um, sort of, uh, 
you know, she couldn't have been more hyperbolic in her praise for Anthea Bell, basically <laughs> saying, I wish you would translate my books into English, you know, <laughs> and jokingly, because she just thinks that Anthea Bell is such, such an extraordinary writer. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's true. I think she, she is wonderful. Now, on a very different, you know, a very different translator, also mm. from the German, it's perhaps good to take the same example, is mm. Michael Hoffman, mm -hmm. um, whom I've worked with quite a lot. Um, mm. Uh, um, when I was at Penguin, um, I commissioned many translations from him, including of Kafka and of Hans Faller, Those Alone in Berlin. Mm -hmm. um, and Michael, who is, as, as most people know, uh, an acclaimed poet or whatever, he, he has a different approach to translation. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't, again, I think that he, he often feels that, um, you know, he, he wants to, especially I remember when, we were, when he was doing Kafka, he only wanted to do Kafka who's been translated obviously endless yeah. times if he could do it and make it his Kafka almost yeah. you know that's not quite how he put it but he felt like it wanted he needed to be different in some way and his aim I remember our correspondence about it his aim there was really to bring out the humor as much as anything which I, I as someone who can read the original German I was all in favor of because there is a lot of uh, yes. wit in Kafka which doesn't always come out in the translations so that was kind of one of his aims. Um, just just a, as a parenthesis, Orson Welles' film version of, of The Trial, mm -hmm. I think, is incredibly witty. Yes, yes. Emphasizes, if you think of adaptation as a translation, that's also in bringing up. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, but, my, but Michael, I think, is less, he doesn't mind if things jar. And we had a lot of interesting back, mm -hmm. you know, back and forths about, um, about things that you know, just don't work. In a way, he was, he, he's trying to create um, something new and original, you know, and I think when he was, for example, with Alone in Berlin, which is set in Berlin during the Second World War and has a lot of local Berlin dialect in it. So clearly, it, how do you translate things like that dialect? Exactly. How, do you, how do you do it? Do you do, you do it in, you know, Cockney? Um, do you, what do you do? What do you, you know, should it be American slang, etc.? So he, he, you know, had to make particular decisions about that, as does any translator who's translating something that's in a specific time and place where dialect plays a role. Exactly. And I think that, um, I think, to my mind, Michael very successfully um, chose a kind of, um, it's more British than American, but it's not very specific to a particular region or time or place. It's mm -hmm. just a sort of, you know, it's kind of colloquially, colloquially British, um, and but you know, not that's not to everyone's liking, perhaps. And it's a kind of it's a tough thing. I don't think you can please all the people all the time with translation generally. And I think every translator must accept that that what they're doing is is one version. Um, Do you think that's one of the things that's changing so much now, or at the moment anyway, with translation? Is 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 that we are in a sense in a sense moving away from the definitive translation? Which would have been perhaps uh, typical of, of the translation of ancient texts. Yes. Um, whereas now we're thinking of translation more as a performance of different texts, well, like a, a mm. musician would, perf would mm. perform. Yes. Of, of I, I think that's true, and I think that perhaps there's more, um, you know, it, a, there's more of a understanding of, among readers that different translations can do different things. Mm. And I think, you know, just as an example, again, Penguin Classics now has several translations in print of various major works mm. all of which you know have their have their um character, uh, character exactly and which which also but are, are successful mm. you know it's not um i mean there are i think now three or four translations of dante you know certainly of the inferno yeah. with just with penguin alone yeah. there are there are many other other publishers are obviously doing it but um there are a few translations of homer i think there are three translations of, of homer's odyssey in print with penguin um, and again, other publishers as well. And the reason they've kept them in print is that they're all very different. Um, and all their time, aren't they? 
yes, and I different, think, different decisions. Yes, pros. about prose yeah. versus, yeah. I mean, Evie yeah. Rue, who was the founding yeah. editor of, of Penguin Classics, and who, who the first Penguin Classics was his translation of the Odyssey, um, and it's still in print, it's too, still hugely successful. It is a prose version. And on the other hand, Robert Fagels, the American poet, and, um, you know, did, a, did a more recent um, version, which is, 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 in, is in, you know, in verse. And, in, and you know, it does a different thing, and it, it, it's, it's wonderful. And, um, and I think they stand really well mm. side by side. Um, and with Dan Dante is another example. I mean, not, it's not just about poetry and prose, but there's different, you know, Dante's obviously very difficult to translate. Um, who's got a very unique meter. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And as a result, I think people approach it quite differently. And some, you know, um, and, and the, the thing is, I think often poets who've, who've approached it have been perhaps a little less faithful to the original. They, they, you know, purposely, they don't, often don't know Italian, right? Sometimes right. they've used cribs. Um, yeah. I mean, this might bring us on to an interesting, something I'm interested in, which has nothing to do with book publishing, but um, is the, I, what I see as a kind of renaissance in recent years in, in Britain of of adaptations for the, the, for yeah. the stage um, by, by, by writers who, who don't, often don't know the, the original language. It's a very um, interesting development. It's happening yeah. an awful lot. But I, I think, from personal experience of having been to these productions, I've seen some absolutely wonderful, mm. um, wonderful versions of plays mm. that I was just, you know, that I, that I loved. I mean, they've been presented as such, aren't they? Yes, uh, yeah, versions, that's or, right, exactly, or, or Andrew Upton. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they just say it's you know, a robust version, version of exactly, the Mizenthal exactly. You know, That's right. They're very open about what they're doing, and I, I, I think it's really exciting, and I think it's great for, um, uh, you know, I think it's great for audiences to be able to experience the, those plays in in new and different ways, yeah. and um, and you know, it doesn't. Maybe it's also it's particularly important with the theater too because uh, sometimes. I think you know that for the stage things probably can feel a bit. You know, the, the, the translations can feel very much very very creaky and of their time. And I think the kind of updating that comes through these new versions, which kind of retains the essence of the play and the characters and um, and obviously the sort of the subject matter and everything, but just adds a little something. They take a few liberties here and there, and I think that can be a really productive thing because it just you know allows the audience to kind of. Um, you know, d just to be a bit closer to the work in some way. Well, so do I. I mean, I think it's it's it's, it's a, almost an aspect of the production, isn't it? Yes. You know, um, and even scenes can be added. McGough has added scenes, I think, to, to this recent misanthrope by, by Molière, mm. um, and the Tissot de Molina, um, you know, the sort of Renaissance, yes. finish, isn't it, uh, that McGinnis was doing at at the National Theatre, yeah. um, was. Was, was was written in an incredibly uh, up to date idiom. Yes. Um, well, I don't mean up to date or not, but an idiom. Sure, the absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, to play devil's advocate a minute, though. Yes. On the other hand, I suppose there's a danger that, that what's being emphasized in, in versions is is what people are going to find immediately entertaining mm -hmm. or, or funny or hit or hit some other button for them as, as, mm -hmm. as controversial and you know, must, must let onto that, uh, which is not necessarily a, a bad thing at all. Uh, but 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 could really I don't know where the line is between translation and adaptation. But you're going quite far to adaptation sometimes. Yes, aren't yes. You? I I think also I wonder whether it's important that in a way with all when we're talking about these works, uh, or the works that we're talking about are usually classics. Mm. So that means they they've already stood the test of time. There have been many versions of them already in mm. existence. So I do think that you have a different responsibility perhaps as a translator 
um, or you know, mm. someone who's, who's writing an adaptation, if you're doing something for the first time, mm. or if you're doing it for the twentieth time, yeah. you know, and it's kind of it goes back to what I was saying about Michael Hoffman and Kafka. Yeah. I think he felt that you know Kafka has been translated so many times. Yeah. You, you, what's the point of doing it if you're not going to try and bring no, something I'm else sure out? True, yeah. You know, and um, likewise, uh, uh, I don't know. But another example, I worked with a translator called Anthony Briggs on quite a few Russian things when I was at uh, Penguin. Um, and he, including War and Peace, which he did a new translation of. Again, uh, a book that has been translated several times. Yes. Um, and one of the things that he was very interested in doing and felt was quite important was to, to, to there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of conversation among soldiers in the book. You may remember, you know, because mm. the, the war bit of the book. Um, and uh, it's quite rough. Yeah. Um, and he felt that the previous translations had, by and large, kind of smoothed things out. Very, um, very common occurrence. Yeah. yeah. And and especially he he even he writes in his afterward about how the previous translators had all been women, and they'd all been kind of upper class women. Mm -hmm. um, and you know they didn't they didn't want this sort of roughness. They wanted to come mm -hmm. anyway. He he used put it back in. Like he put it back in, and he made it in, you know he made it very vulgar yeah. um, that those those bits of it. Mm -hmm. I think it worked very successfully, and lots of people loved it. Other people criticized him for it. You know, probably in many cases people didn't know the original Russian, you know, who were just responding to their. And that's another common thing that we have you know we haven't talked about, but how often critics, you know, um, they, they criticize translations because especially of classics, because their view of the work has been informed by their experience of, of, a, tra of a particular translation. Yes. That's the one they fall in love with. And they think that Kafka or Tolstoy, or whoever it is, should read a certain way. Yeah. And, that, and that's influenced by the first translator, whoever it might be. I mean, you know, I think huge numbers of tra you know, um, people reading Tolstoy read Constance Garnett um, and Rosemary Edmonds, mm -hmm. you know. Um, Many things from um, the French are even translated really by Sainsbury. Exactly, and yeah, that. exactly. And I, and I think that when, the, when translations have been around for so long yeah. and have been read by so many people, that becomes almost, in the other language, you know, the sort of definitive version. But in fact, it may, as sometimes is discovered, have not only smoothed out edges, but left things out in some yeah. cases. Leaving or, things out, very you know, common. Yeah. Very common. Yeah. And I think, I think that's something that is a lot less common now, yes. you know, despite what so we've discussed about I think it's sort of unacceptable now to just leave things out yeah. um, in a way that it was very common, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago to just, you know, the translator would take a lot more liberty in that respect. I mean, I think people might add things, but they're not going to take them out. Yes, days, yes, that's right. A really exactly. salutary development, yes. I think. Um, you mentioned Zweig before, and I did want yes. to talk to you a, a, a little bit about that, because mm -hmm. you, you've got a, a lot of books by Zweig yes. and now some on Zweig as well, mm -hmm. haven't you? Um, Tell, tell us a bit what, 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 what attracts you to him. Obviously, he's a, a, mm -hmm. a major middle well, European writer who died in 1942, yes. didn't he, in a suicide pact with his second wife. Exactly, yeah. Uh, in Brazil, um, in fact. Absolutely, yeah. Well, Zweig is very interesting because he, he was an incredibly successful, best-selling writer in the 1920s and 30s in many languages, yeah. including in English. Most of his work was translated into English in the 20s and 30s. Um, he lived in, in England for, I think it was four years, but for several years. He came in the 30s. He lived in London on Hallam Street, and he lived in, in Bath for, for a time, and before going to New York and then Brazil, as you mentioned, where he, where he took his own life. Um, and I think, I think it's interesting because he, he, then, he then sort of disappeared mm. from, from the scene and was dropped out of print and kind of forgotten in English. 
Then, he, then there was a sort of a slight revival of his work about 30-odd years ago. Um, and then again, he dropped out of sight mm. until I think the latest and I would say most successful um, revival of his work in English, um, which has been spearheaded by Pushkin Press, but Pushkin Press aren't alone in, in publishing Zweig. Um, we now have over 20 of his books in print. Um, most of them, as mentioned, in new translations by Anthea Bell, yeah. um, but not all of them, um, and fiction and nonfiction. Um, and I think I think what's really, you know, he's an unusual author because he's he he sort of sends to he's a crowd pleaser, um, and and very accessible, you know, as the sort of best selling um, um, you know kind of history his best selling history would suggest. But he's also very popular with writers and with critics, um, uh, not all as as is often the case, but with many of them. And I think that you know he's a very dramatic writer, and with a couple exceptions. The other thing that you know probably affected his popularity to some extent is that he he's not he wasn't really a writer of novels. Um, he only completed one novel in his lifetime that was published. Beware of Pet, exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, everything which, which else he's doing. Yeah. Yes, which we which we have in print and Anthea Bell newly translated yeah. for us. Um, and I think it's an extraordinary, incredibly powerful book. It is about four hundred pages. All his other great work. Um, as short novella novels, like, they? yeah. yeah, they're they're either short short stories or novellas, mm-hmm. and you know the novella has a very long strong tradition in German, as you know, and yeah. um, but is is somehow you know has generally not been as popular in English. I think it's not as respected. Um, it's sort of felt like it's the kind of you know the, the sort of another short story, no novel. Yeah, exactly, heart, exactly. Then. I think I think that is no longer. I think it's no longer the case that it bothers people the way that it once did. Well, I think but it's an effect of translation itself. You know, the people are becoming to becoming aware that literature exists in different forms in different languages, let alone in a different language. Exactly. Yeah. yeah exactly. Um, but so Zweig, Zweig tells incredibly dramatic stories. Um, uh, you know, often melodramatic, um, and one of his great skills. Um, with his nonfiction was dramatizing, yeah. you know, biographies yes. of people exactly. Yeah, um, and yeah but but yeah, Nietzsche. Um, uh, but but you know, in in the world of yesterday, his his great autobiography. Um, he he that was published posthumously just after he died, but he completed yeah. it. You know, um, and and he he has amazing pen portraits of all the great figures of yeah. his day, you know, Freud and many others. Um, and and we're publishing later this year. Is actually his most successful book in German, which has been long out of print um, here. And that is a book that um, we're calling "Shooting Stars: Ten Historical Miniatures." The German original is "Stern Stunden der Menschheit." It was first published in 1928 um, with five um, sort of short biographical essays. And what they are, and now that now I think the current edition in German is 14. We're doing 10, um, and they are, are essays of five to ten thousand words, no more. Um, which dramatize uh, a particular event, you know, historical event or you know, life in some way. And one example would be um, uh, Handel's writing of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. He manages to make a really great story, but sticking to the kind of you know, facts of what happened, of, of the illness that, that Handel suffered, and yes. then writing the Messiah, and, and coming back to life in a way, and what happened after that. And, you know, he writes about Scott's polar exploration, and he writes about the first telegram, and he writes about uh, Waterloo, and, you know, lo- lots of different things. Um, and I think he has a real, you know, his, his, he brings his, um, you know, his fiction writing skills to bear on these non-fiction events in a, in a really wonderful way. Um, 
I think he's a very a very powerful writer indeed. I must say, and I think the the, the, no, the novella, one of the novellas you're doing now, also translated by Anthea Bell, is is, is a journey into the past, isn't mm-hmm. it? Which is a, a very gripping story indeed about uh, a rather complicated and ultimately un- unconsummated love affair between a younger man and an older woman, and separated by a journey by the by the war, the First World War, typically. So it's a very understated, but 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 very uh, very multifaceted bit of narrative, I yes. think. Um, I just wondered, wondered what you thought about why he did fall a, a, out of, of, of popularity at a, mm-hmm. on, on a range of, at a, in a range of periods, as you mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. And just after the war, I suppose, um, uh, after the Second World War, he was he was starting. His writing doesn't look very modernist, does it? Yeah. It looks it, it sure. out of its time. Yeah. Um, and in fact, was reasonably heavily criticised from a philosophical point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for not actually being up to yes. uh, its time and not mm-hmm. responding properly to well the Holocaust mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. especially but also mm-hmm. you know the prospect of the Cold War and, yes and uh, yes I mean, Hannah Arendt uh, mm-hmm. I suppose I better but mention her you know the, the, uh, uh, political theorist obviously from Germany and America is was particularly scathing wasn't she at, at the mm-hmm. uh, you know the, the publication of, of his memoirs saying that it, it was it, it expressed um, a, a rather, really rather faded and uh, mm-hmm. r- rather r- negatively out, out of out of touch uh, expression of, of European idealism. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I wonder whether. Um, yeah, the, 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 this is you know these are fair criticisms of Zweig, um, and I guess. I, right. I don't think it matters. I yes, yes, of course, no, no, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. I, I guess mm-hmm. I think perhaps. The farther you get away in time from 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 a writer, you know, the, the yeah. sort of ideological battles around them yeah. don't seem as pressing, and you kind of go back to the kind of essence of the work, and you can appreciate it for what it is. And it's not, you know, I think with almost any writer, you can find, you know, you can find. Um, I meant to, um, I meant to even actually yeah. to to increase his interest, to, you know, to, to 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 think about the way that he was thought negative. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, that's it. Yes, absolutely. Because he's got a. Because the re- he's uh, in a way, the criticisms that I mentioned there, uh, in in a in a negative way, are expressing something about what he was trying to achieve. Yes, I mean, he yes, did that's actually true. think that Europe was a, was a pa- was a place of innovation yeah. and liberalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. uh, you know, yeah, I agree with all that. All those things. Yeah, and, no, and that's precisely what he was then challenged about. Yes, and and it's all, but it's also true, of course, that related to that is the kind of. Um, you know, he, he he was a very he had a deep nostalgia. You know, mm. that's expressed obviously in the world of yesterday, and that's a very, um, you know, I, I think it's, you know, it's one way of looking at that period and that, you know, um, and and I guess with all, you know, it does increase the for me it does make it more interesting. It doesn't yeah. you don't sort of have to accept all his views right. and adopt them right. in order to be struck by. You know the quality of the writing mm. of of the I portrait of a particular time and place, because um, I, I think that's what I think readers respond with Zweig to the immediacy of the work, yeah. to the passionate nature yeah. of it, etc. But uh, you know it doesn't mean that it's not that there aren't problems with it or things that you can you know question or whatever. But I, I think that's true of any of any yeah. good writer. You know, I mean, I don't. Um, and his fiction writing is enormously crafted in the sense of paste. Yes, you absolutely. Think, you know that. It, you, you, you can't skip and you can't run. You've just got to take it at the pace in which it's presented. Yes. You know, one of the things that Anthea Bell knows very well how to do. In yes, and, and one thing, actually, and Anthea has spoken um, publicly, one of the things that she thinks is really striking with Zweig when she sort of 
started getting interested in him and translating more of him is how many of his you know his novellas were really pared down you know they started yeah. longer and he cut and cut and cut them back to their essence and I think that's a real you know, skill and she thinks she wonders whether with Beware of Pity for example than the one novel whether that might have ended up as a novella if mm. he'd actually had the time I mean it was published in 1939 I think and mm. so you know he was some people say it's two novellas or, or something yeah like and, that and, they, and they think well I think they just you know you can imagine that it could have it could have been um, I mean, for me, I'm glad he didn't do that because yes. I love the, for me, the power. Yes, it does have those different stories. And I, for me, the power of it maybe is I like the length of it. Yes. It works for me and perhaps in contrast to the rest of his work, which is so boiled down. Um, and it's very, um, it, it is, even, even in that pared down dimension, it's extraordinarily dramatic, as you say. Absolutely. You know, they're very polarized between sort of sources of power and, and sources of the desire for power. Yes. It's very, very intricately yes. worked out with him at a sort of yes. psychological level. Absolutely. Uh, as opposed, perhaps, to a modernist level, but very, yes. very intricate working out mm -hmm. how people might feel in relation to each other. I think also, you know, you mentioned the, the sort of, you know, how he might have fallen out of favor because of the interest in modernism and, mm -hmm. and all of that. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, these things... Perhaps as time has gone by, um, people are less interested in those sort of yes, those sorts sure. of battles, you yes. know. And I think, um, you know, they, they they meant a lot more to people at a certain time. And mm -hmm. in some ways, I think work that was particular, you know, often work that was kind of reacting against a kind of realist mode. It seems very dated in, in a different so. way, you yes. know. Yes, um, yeah. So you know, and I, I also think it can be a quite academic. Um, discussion that isn't really of interest to most readers in a way you know um, I think it's only of interest to readers or to, to me in any case if, if it says something about what the writer is actually trying to achieve yes and, uh, um, and I think uh, his, his relationship to modernism is is revealing yes know, both about both about himself and about the debate which as yes. you say can otherwise become a little bit arid yeah yeah uh, because he is obviously talking about his time yes uh, and you know whatever the, the time of the in which his narratives are set, maybe before the First World War, he's talking about the whole, um, his continuing belief, in, in, I suppose, in, 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 this, in the creativity of European thought. Yeah, absolutely, um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting, he's, a few people have criticized him as being such a bourgeois writer, you know, the, sort yeah. of the term used, you know, and, uh, dismissively, and I mean, he is a very bourgeois figure. It's true, but but I think that's all right. I don't think that's. I think that's his great strength in a way is that he, you know, and he does. He, you know, most of his characters are of particular classes and all of that. But that's all right. That's what he knew well, and he he you know you write what you know. They always exactly. say, and I think he I think he did that. Exactly. And, um, you know, but but um, but obviously other people in the same era were writing you know different things that they were interested in more. So. I wonder if I might, just very quickly before we stop, mention, mention another uh, uh, writer on your list at the moment, uh, Marcel Imi, mm -hmm. uh, uh, in a very engaging translation by Sophie Lewis. Yes. Um, it's a collection of his stories, isn't it? Uh, the Man Who Walked Through Walls Eponymously. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's another one um, about, uh, about the Seven League Boots, yes. uh, which struck me as well very strongly. I mean, Marcel Imi is another uh, figure very, very difficult to categorize. Yes, absolutely. And in terms of genre. Yes. Because they can look a little bit like, uh, well, like sort of fairy tales or fantasy mm -hmm. tales. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a, uh, 
Well, I was going to say moral. There is a sort of moral in all of them, isn't there? And there's also a, a sense in which uh, he, he's talking about the social climate of his time. Yes, uh, yeah. I mean, and I think, I think they're... I mean, my sense of why readers have responded so well to them, mm. to this translation, I think Sophie has, as you say, done an, an extraordinary job. Mm. It's very fresh. The, the, they are very original stories. They sort of, sort of almost sci-fi element to them, you know, and um, they, they don't feel quite... They're slightly genre-defying, um, and they're really fun. You know, mm-hmm. not you know, not you know, not all of them, but most of them are very. They're really fun to read. Yeah, yes, they just they it's surprising, yeah. um, and and I think that's just quite exciting. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I really enjoy. I've enjoyed them enormously, and I've, I've found lots of people who read them just sort of tend to, you know, you either if you read them and and like them, you really sort of fall in love with them. Mm-hmm. Um, um, as Nick Lazar did, you know, yes. and it's a kind of, they do have that effect, I, I think, you know, that you feel great affection for them. And in terms of, um, you know, M.A., and it's true of another writer on our list, Paul Moran, in terms of the sort of, you know, um, very much of his time, also uh, their political questions around yes. him, you know, different. And again, maybe those, maybe as, dis, as more distance grows, you know, when you get further away from the time, you can you can view the author um, in all their complexity much yeah. more easily than you can at the time. That you can kind of accept that um, there are things about them that are perhaps a bit politically dubious that you might not agree with, but that the writing is still very interesting and engaging or exciting in some way. And it's well, he's one of those who stayed in Paris during the occupation. Yes. Um, but I mean, I've had a look recently at at, at, at a sort of collection of his journalistic writings, which is which is more or less political, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're also very heavily satirical, mm. um, and uh, I think uh, he's it, in in this sense old-fashioned and old-fashioned artist, and this all, all very uh, has a view of art which is which is very long-standing, uh, which is that in order to bear witness to its time, it it, it cannot be overtly political, mm-hmm. uh, one way or the other, mm. um, and I think that does come across very strongly. I must say he's he's he seems to be very very angry indeed. Uh, at the political discourse at itself, yes. uh, and its habit of, of, of packaging ideas and chopping off the corners to, to make them more mm. easily opposed mm. to each other, mm. you know, uh, whether that be nationalism versus socialism, or, yes. or the, the, those debates that went on during the war and, yeah. and, and afterwards, you know, um, all the debates about uh, uh, whether communism should be accepted or not in yes. elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think again a strength of the work as with as with Zweig and you were saying, I mean you can read the work on different levels. You mm-hmm. can either read it for that pure the pure pleasure of it and the, of the kind of extreme to which he takes mm-hmm. the ideas of the things that happen, or you can see political parallels or think about you know, when it was written and why why he was writing in that way. You know, the, the work is again like all great works of literature, it lends itself to different interpretations and and can be read on different levels, and I don't think one is right or wrong, um, uh, and that's true of yeah of Amy and Zweig of many other writers. Mm. Well, Adam, I think we're going to have to stop there. We're running out of time. Uh, there are so many more things we could talk about, but thank you so much for, for coming in today. Pleasure. Thank you for having me.